You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, great to see you. Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be, so you want to make sure you flip there. And before we dig into the details of Jonah 3, I want to make sure that you're seeing Jonah clearly and that you're not lost kind of in the details of, of the chapters. You're, you haven't lost the big picture view of what's happening. And so if you've been here from the get-go with us, we're, we're eight weeks in now. If you've been here from the get-go, you've, you've heard us say this repeatedly, that Jonah is a storied presentation of the gospel. That's what Jonah is. It's a storied presentation of sin and grace. And so we've said this repeatedly, that you don't see sin in the text. Like you're not going to read a, a, a word and see sin mentioned, but you see it saturate the text. It's a storied presentation of sin. So rather than saying this is what sin is, this is what sin does, it shows you a man on the run from God. Running from God is the storied presentation of what sin is. And then you're not going to read grace in the text. You're not going to read through Jonah and see the word grace, but you're going to see it behind every word, sustaining everything that's happening. Grace is pictured. It's a story presentation. Grace is God pursuing and God running after his rebellious runners, his sinful runners. So, so you've got this storied presentation of the gospel being displayed in the book of Jonah. So let, let me throw these words from an author that we've used a lot throughout the book of Jonah to kind of bring this to light for us. He says this, Jonah is a storied presentation of the gospel. It's a story of sin and grace, of desperation and deliverance. It's a story that reveals that while you and I are great sinners, God is a great savior. Amen? That's what God is. It's a story of how a God of great expenditure relentlessly pursues self-righteous fugitives. It's a story that shows that while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches further. It's a story that shows God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. So as we run through these details, don't miss the beauty of the forest as we're in and amongst the trees. All the details are about displaying the gospel. Okay, with that said, chapter 3. By the time you you turn to chapter 3, the tension has built. In chapter 1, God has come to Jonah and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Instead of going to Nineveh, he runs as far as he can in the other direction. So Jonah runs, and then you've got, in in chapter 1, verse 4, you've got God running after So you've got God pursuing Jonah, not because God needs Jonah, but because Jonah needs God. So God is pursuing Jonah, running after Jonah. And at the end of the day, he ends up having to bruise Jonah. He puts him in the middle of a well, right? In the middle of a great fish. He's in the belly of a great fish. And eventually when you get to the end of chapter two, verse 10, that fish vomits Jonah out of the belly onto the beach. And that's where you pick it up in chapter 3. And I think this is one of the things that that the tension and kind of the questions that this text is going to ask here is you just kind of start into chapter 3. Is okay, so God has rescued his rebellious prophet. And so here's one of the questions. Will this rebellious prophet now join God in his rescuing work? Okay, so as you come to chapter 3, that's where we are. Verse 1 says this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Jonah 3, 2, that verse, and Jonah 1, 2, they're mirror images. They're the same thing. It's the same message. God has come back to Jonah a second time. And we camped here last week, 
And I hope you can get a sense of the amazing nature of grace from those verses. That God holds no grudges against Jonah. All the grudge that God held against Jonah was placed onto Jesus. That God held nothing against him, no grudge. He came to him a second chance. He doesn't negotiate with Jonah. He doesn't give up on Jonah. This is what you call amazing grace. These verses reassociate the word amazing and the word grace, and they marry them together. And I hope last week that God moved us from viewing grace as something we're accustomed to, to something we're in awe of and overwhelmed by and astounded by. It's amazing grace, right? I mean, this is what you see here. Okay, now watch how this plays out. Here's here's Jonah's response to this amazing grace of God. Verse three. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. He's gonna join God in this rescuing work according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Okay, it's been a while since we've talked about Nineveh. So let me just kind of jog the memory here. Nineveh was a great city. It was the capital of the people of Assyria. It's in modern day Iraq and it is a powerful populated city. This is what one author says about it. Nineveh in Jonah's time was great in population, great in power, great in prestige, and great in importance. This is Nineveh. Okay, now it's the capital of Assyria, and I think this would be a safe assumption as you read kind of the biblical narrative that there's no people in the Bible who have a worse reputation than the people of Assyria. There's nobody in the Bible that has a worse one. They kind of stand as this representative people for what it means to live life apart from God. That They were renowned and infamous for their cruel acts, for their just brutal behavior, for their, their atrocities against other human beings. Kind of a part of their national, just kind of foreign policy was brutality, cruelty, atrocity. So this is how this worked. They would look at other nations and say this, this can really go down either one of two ways. Way number one, might work out better for you. You can surrender peaceably. And if you do that, you'll have minor consequences. And this is minor consequences to to the people of Assyria. This is one of the things they pose to the people of Israel as they're going to try to take over one of the cities. They're going to say that, okay, if you surrender peaceably, here's all we'll do to you. We'll take your men and we'll gouge out all of their eyes. No big deal, right? I mean, just a minor thing. Okay, or here's your other option. We will come in and without mercy manhandle your city and without mercy murder everyone you you just pick your you just pick your plot here it can go down one of two ways this was the people of assyria now i hope you can get a sense of this right off of the get-go can you see the grace here can you see that this is god who has set his affection on a brutal people this is god who, who is taking and I mean, just the people that are renowned for their cruelty and saying, those are the people I am going to redeem. I mean, salvation is on the way to those people, the unlikely people, those people who stand and kind of represent anti-God to those people. My grace is on the way. Can you see that right off the, is that not encouraging to us when we think of unlikely people and when we consider an unlikely you for God to set his affection on and an unlikely me? This is a, just a, por- a portrait of the grace of God that you're seeing here. Okay, now watch what happens in verse four. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, here's the sermon, five words in Hebrew. Don't expect one that short, all right? Okay, here it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's not overly seeker sensitive there, right? 
I mean, that, that's a pretty confrontational word that Jonah brings. Now watch the response to God's word. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What you're seeing displayed in Jonah is a revival, a God wrought and a God brought revival, an extraordinary act of God where on a citywide level, repentance is happening. And I can't read that passage without just God planting on me a need to pray for our country and our cities. We are in great need of revival. Wouldn't you agree with that? That if you just take a panoramic picture across our country and across our cities, I don't know how you could disagree. Um, one theologian, he's going to say this, that, and I think this is true. When you go across any major American city, what you would get a sense of is this strange sense of the absence of God there. I'll never forget taking a group of students down to New Orleans. And if you've ever been there, there's this, there's this city kind of square that you've got all your tarot card readers. I mean, you've got the craziness of New Orleans concentrated in that area. And I'll never forget walking around this area just with this strange sense of the absence of God. It's just an oppressive feeling. And listen, you can find that in Dallas. I mean, you can go 30 minutes and you can find that. Listen, you can find that in this city, in parts and areas of it. Our city. Right here. When you think about the multitudes of people in our nation, amongst our cities, that have never had a good and accurate gospel presented to them and have never responded with, with affection to it, the hope for them is for a God-wrought revival. Okay, now let's bring this a little closer to home. It's not just in our country and in our cities, it's in our churches. Chuck Colson, who's kind of a leader in just the evangelical world, he says this about churches in North America, that churches here in our country represent the largest mission field on our continent. Now, isn't that something? That you've got people who gather weekly, who even like to gather weekly, who come and listen to sermons, they sing the songs, and intellectually they have an awareness of God, they agree with some facts, but they've never been transformed. Their heart has never experienced the saving work of God. This is what he's saying, that we need this in our country, in our cities, and in our churches. We're desperate for that sort of a move for God. Now, when you think about revivals, I think this is one of the interesting things, is there's a lot of like mysterious, like what is exactly a revival? Like what is that? I grew up, I don't know kind of your tradition growing up in church, or if you did, I grew up in a church that we would do like revivals on like a by you know, annual type of a schedule where we would do this week-long thing where we'd bring in a preacher, he'd preach for five nights in a row. That was revival for us, right? That's not revival. That's, that's bringing in a guy to preach for five nights in a row is what that is, right? Re revival is when repentance goes wide scale. Revival is when personal repentance, real repentance happens across a city across a church, across a country. That's revival. It's personal repentance that goes widespread. That, that's what revival is. It's when, it's this mysterious work of God where repentance is maximized. Where repentance is thrown into the forefront and it happens 
through a wide scope of people. This is revival. Okay, now I think this is interesting. When you look at revival, when you look at this passage in Jonah chapter three, revival is pictured, but it's never mentioned. You don't see the word revival in, in this passage. Here's the word you see mentioned four times in this passage in chapter three is the word repentance. See, re- it's, revival is repentance on a wide scale. And repentance is the theme of this chapter. So I think if you could condense like the application of this chapter into two questions, it would go like this. Have you repented? Question one. Question two, are you repenting? Have you and are you? And listen, that is not just a theme of this chapter. It's not like an isolated theme in the book of Jonah. This is one of the primary themes throughout the scriptures. If you look at the Old Testament, the root word for repentance is mentioned over a thousand times. It's an Old Testament theme. You can't get away from it in the Old Testament. When you start reading the New Testament, you can't get away from it. It's a reoccurring word that you see over and over in the New Testament. So when you flip to the Gospels and you start reading and you come to John the Baptist, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see John the Baptist preaching a message of repentance. He's going to look at people and he's going to call them to repent. And when you get to Jesus, you're going to see Jesus preaching a message of repentance. When you get to Mark chapter 1 verse 15, you're going to see Jesus look at a group of people and say, repent. The the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message of the Bible. In Luke chapter 24, this is when Jesus has been resurrected and he's going to commission his disciples. You know what his commissioning statement is in Luke 24 to his disciples? Here it is. You need to go. I'm commissioning you to go to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. That's the command that Jesus gives. That That is another form, another way of saying the Great Commission. This is what God has commissioned us to do. This is the plan of God to preach repentance to every person on the planet. Okay, now when you go to Acts, you're going to see this start to play out. The, the early church and the apostles, they start preaching this message of repentance. When you get to Acts chapter 2, you've got Pentecost. Peter stands up before a large crowd and he preaches to them. A confrontational sermon. At the end of it, they are cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? I mean, what do we do here? Tell us what's next. And he looks at them and says, repent. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Later on in Acts 17, you're going to see Paul preaching to the people in Athens. Do you remember this? They've got this kind of conglomerate of gods that they worship, kind of this pantheistic view of the world. And he comes in and he preaches to them. And at the end of this sermon, he's going to say, listen, the times of ignorance, they have passed. God is now commanding all people everywhere, like now, today, to repent because he has fixed a time of judgment for all people. So, so Paul's telling them, if you want to be right with God, it takes repentance. This is what it requires of you. A right relationship with God requires repentance. A relationship with God requires repentance. It's not a one-time act. You don't just repent once and get over it. It is the continual agenda for the life of a follower of Jesus. This is the reoccurring theme, the reoccurring mark of a person's life that is following God. Like I would even put it this way. The best way to measure your progress toward God is not the lack of sin in your life. A better way to monitor your progress with God is how often you're repenting in your life. You see that? See, as long as there is sin in you, and it will always be in you as long as you're breathing on this planet. As long as there is sin in you, there's always going to be a need to repent. 
It's not a one-time act. It is a reoccurring theme. It is the agenda. It is at the top of the list. It is this reoccurring issue in the life of every follower of God. Repentance, repenting and believing the gospel. This is the way we enter the kingdom of God. It's how we make all progress throughout the kingdom of God. This is why Martin Luther, when he's starting the Protestant Reformation, right? He didn't know this was going to start, but how it started was he um, nailed and kind of tacked these 95 theses onto the church in Wittenberg the castle there. And here's the first um, kind of statement that he puts in these 95. Here's number one for him. He says, when our Lord Jesus said, repent, here is what he meant, that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. It is the reoccurring theme. It is the agenda of the life of a follower of God. And this is what concerns me, that in our church culture of seeker sensitivity, repentance and the meaning of repentance is a lost word and a lost idea that you can go for weeks maybe months maybe even years without hearing that from the mouth of God's preachers and from the pulpits of God's churches that is a bad thing when we forsake that word to please people we are sabotaging all that God wants to do in people And I think there's a reason for that. Listen to these words from a pastor a hundred years ago. He says that why people don't preach repentance like this. He says, the man whose little sermon is repent sets himself against his age. See, I I think one of the problems with a lot of our churches is we tried to blend into our age as opposed to setting ourselves against our age. Okay, listen to what he goes on to say. The man whose little sermon is repent sets himself against his age and will for the time being be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for such a man. And here it is, off with his head. You'd better not try to preach repentance until you have pledged your head to heaven. And listen, I just want to tell you this as your pastor, my head is pledged to heaven on this issue. Because if I forsake this, if we let go of this, then all that God wants to do in you and in us is sabotage. It's impossible without repentance, without us preaching it. Okay, now with that said, um, here's what I want to do in Jonah chapter 3. I want to show you four marks of repentance. It's not all that we could say about repentance, but it's four things that have to be said about it. So four marks of repentance, I think will help kind of clarify this issue for us. Okay, so let's start in verse four. Chapter three, verse four, here's what we see there. Jonah, in in chapter, or in in verse two, God has reestablished the message that he has told him. So God has spoken to Jonah, this is the message, and then this is what it says. Verse four, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, here's the message, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, here's the first thing I want you to see here. Repentance always, always begins with a collision. Okay, so repentance always begins when God's people, when we open up the Bible and God's word goes forth and that word collides with, smashes into, crashes into. I mean, it it comes with such powerful force that it devastates our lives. This is how repentance starts. 
is when the word of God comes with such power and such force that it decimates us. That like the people of Nineveh, when God's word is spoken, the, the city wide, like the, the entire group of people is laid low before God. Repentance always starts with the word of God. That's where it always starts. It is the word of God when it is spoken, when it is preached, when it is read, that arouses repentance in the hearts of people. It is the word of God that exposes our sin that unmask our motives, that makes even our good deeds damnable before God. See, it's the word of God that does all of this. It's the reason the word of God is called the sword of the spirit, because it is what cuts to the core of our hearts. Okay, let me give you just a couple of illustrations of this. Do you remember the story of David? We, we kind of talked a little bit about this last week, where David was a man who had an affair with a woman, and because he couldn't cover up her pregnancy, he kills her husband. Remember that? Okay, do you know how the story kind of goes from there? This is months later. God speaks to the prophet Nathan. Nathan, you go in and you talk to David about this. So, so here's how this plays out. Um, Nathan goes in, he, he meets with David, and he tells David a story. And the story goes like this. David, there was this man who, he was rich. This guy had many flocks, many herds, had everything he needed. This, this guy was wealthy. And then there was this poor guy. And this poor guy, he had nothing. He had only this one little lamb. One, that's all he had was one little lamb. And this thing was like part of his family. This thing ate at his table. It drank out of his cup. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That re- I mean, that, that is what a lot of y'all do with your dogs, though. And I'm just telling you, it's not right. A sweater on a dog is never right, all right? Never so, so this little lamb is, is eating at the table. He's drinking out of the cup. It says that literally for this guy, this lamb was like a daughter to him. And you remember how the story goes? Nathan says, and, and man, this, this rich guy had a traveler come in. And instead of this rich guy just killing one of, of, of his own animals, he had a lot of them, he had huge flocks. Rather than doing that, he goes over and he, he, he robs the poor man, his little lamb. He slaughters it and feeds that to his guests. And David, that, that word aroused a response response in David. And David looks at Nathan and says, that man has to die. Remember what Nathan says back to him? David, you are that man. See, this is what the word of God does to us. It cuts to the quick of our heart. It cuts deep into us, exposing all that we're trying to cover, unmasking all of these weird motives inside of us. This is what the word does. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus? In one instant, the word of God slams him. It slaughters him on the road to Damascus, forever changing him. See, that word of God aroused repentance in him. You you remember Acts chapter two, we just referred to this a second ago, where Peter is about to preach a confrontational sermon. He starts with Jesus. He's telling him that, man, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the man attested to you by miracles. This is Jesus whom God appointed, this predetermined plan to put him and nail him on a cross. And then he looks at these people, this large crowd, and he says this, and you are the one who killed him. Remember that? See, this is what the word of God does to us. It says that literally the word of God cut them to the heart. And they look up, it aroused this repentance. They looked up and said, what do we do? And Peter says, you repent, that's what you do. This is what's happened in Jonah. 
Jonah, he is a man that God has given a message to. That message comes out of his mouth and it lands on a city. And that message, the word of God, aroused repentance throughout the city. It caused a revival to take place. See, this is how it always works. Repentance always starts with the word of God crashing, colliding, devastating us. This is how it starts for us. Okay, so let's try to boil this down and, and maybe apply this. This is why we preach from the Bible. This is why we, we try to go through books of the Bible. This is why we counsel with the scriptures. This is why we sing scriptures. This is why we speak the gospel with scriptures. It's because it is the word of God that arouses repentance in people. This is why Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. That it is a breathing thing. It is a living thing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides joints and marrow. It gets down to the thoughts and intentions of your heart. This is what the word of God does to you, does to me. So, so let me ask you the question. Are you currently reading the word of God and is it causing you to repent? You open up the Bible, you read it, it exposes parts of you, ugly things in you, and you repent. When's the last time that's happened in you, right? I mean, has that been like months? Has that been like years? See, if it's been years, this is a problem. The whole of our life is meant to be repentance. We, we repent and we believe the gospel. That's the whole of our life. Are we opening up the Bible? Is it causing those sorts of things in us? Uh, let me ask you this question. And let me make a statement first. If you look at Jonah and if you look at Peter preaching the sermon, if you look at Nathan and David, oftentimes the word of God will come to us from the lips of people. And see, this is what concerns me about many of us in the room, that we are living our life outside of community. So there's no people, there's no Nathans in our life speaking the word of God into our life. There, there's no Nathans in our life that know you well enough and live with you well enough that you've opened up your life to, that when they see ugliness in you, when they see sinful tendencies in you, weirdness in you, sin in you, that look at you and say, you are that man. You are that that, that woman. See, when you, when you put yourself out of community, you take yourself away from one of God's primary ways of causing repentance in you. So, so let me ask you that question. Has the word of God come from the lips of maybe a trusted friend, husband, a wife that you've been open to? That, that the word of God has come to you through their mouth and it's caused you to repent? Is that happening? See, if not, it's impossible for you to be in a right relationship with God. Without continual repentance, it is impossible to walk hand in hand with God. How about this one? How about sitting under good, faithful preaching? Is that arousing repentance in you? See, this is one of God's primary means to arouse repentance in you, for you to get under good, faithful preaching that takes the Bible and seeks to apply, explain it, and then apply it to your life. Are, is that a causing repentance in you? Is that causing you, is that exposing things in you and causing and arousing repentance for you, for you to turn from these things and to turn to God in belief? I, I'll never forget as a seventh grader, I was in one of those revivals. You know, those five-day meeting things, right? 
And so I'll never forget this preacher um, preaching that night. And it was as if God had given him a message that was supposed to be spoken to Rodney, right? And th this was a moment that God aroused repentance in me for the first time. And God redeemed me, rescued me, saved me that night. I'll never forget that night, right? That I repented. That was that past act, that first act that, that saves. And since then, I've got all of these markers in my life of where God has done the same thing. Through his word, through the, through the wounds of faithful friends, through the preaching of his word, that God has caused just continual repentance in my life. When I was um, finishing my freshman year of college, I did not live for the glory of God my freshman year. Um, I joined a fraternity house, not because I wanted to get the gospel into it. And so uh, at the end of that year, I went to a college retreat. And uh, I'll never forget this moment of, of a, a pastor. He was preaching, and it was as if, again, God had given him a message, and he was faithful to speak that message, and that message was meant to cause repentance in me. He, he kind of gave this imagery of a table, and you're sitting on one side, God is sitting on the other. And it was this visible imagery of you putting your yes on the table and you cutting every string to that yes. You releasing your grip from that yes, giving all rights to that yes to God, to do whatever he wanted with it. I'll never forget that moment of, of that, that particular message from that, that preacher preaching God's word that aroused repentance in me. That I was selfish, that I had all of these, if this God, then you can have it. I had all these strings attached to it. And this was a moment that God caused repentance in me through the faithful preaching of God's word. And so is that happening? Is repentance continually being aroused by the word of God, sitting in it, listening to it, hearing preaching of it? Is that causing those sort of things in you? Okay, there's more here. Look at verse five. And the people of Nineveh, and I want you to watch what, what this collision with the word of God produced in them. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. I want you to see what's happening here. This collision with the, with the word of God produced and created a comprehensive change in the people of Nineveh. A comprehensive change. The city of Nineveh is now completely different after this collision with the word of God. Okay, so let me show you this in maybe two different ways to break this up. One is you have the width of change, the width of revival, the width of this collision. Look in verse five. It starts out, all the people of Nineveh. That's a summary statement. It's saying that, that all the people there's who we're talking about, all of these people, but look at the end of verse five. It repeats it. It reemphasizes it. It says this, from the greatest of them to the least of them. See, I mean, he's saying that all the people, like it's without exception, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, everybody, they are all repenting. And if you have ever been around people, you, you would know that this is an amazing act of God, right? I mean, where does it say, but there's that one grumbler over there that just hated everything, right? 
I mean, where does it say, but there's one complainer that he just resisted every God brought change to him, right? I mean, where does it say that, but there's that one jerk that looked at Jonah and said, Jonah, I'm going to kill you for that. None of those things, right? I mean, I've preached long enough to know that this is what's normal in preaching. And by the way, most of this was in the world of youth. So it's already a humbling thing, right? But this is normal. Is that when, when, when you speak as a preacher, when you're, when you're preaching the word of God, th- this is the normal response to it. Somebody afterwards will come up and, and say something like this to you. God just used you to just rock my, I mean, just to totally shake me to the foundations of my life. I mean, God just used those words to devastate and crush some defiance in me. Okay, that's person one. Here comes person two. Did you know your, your right shoestring was untied? <laughs> I mean, I'm listening the whole time. I can't even pay attention to your words. I'm looking at your shoestring. And the thing, like every three or four minutes, that thing's dangling out there, right? How, how do you expect me to listen when this is happening, right? That, that's conversation number two, right? But in Nineveh, it is widespread and comprehensive. From the greatest to the least of them, God has grabbed their attention. He has arrested their attention and they are focused on God. It's widespread. Okay, now see this though, that the, that the width of the revival did not match the depth of the repentance. Now watch the depth of this play out. And you see the depth in two ways. First of all, you see that the depth of this repentance reached their hearts. That this repentance reached their heart. This was not, if you've ever been in this scene, this was not like the last night of youth camp where everybody's crying and nobody's changing, right? It's not that scene. This is a comprehensive change where God has just devastated them. See, repentance is always deeper than your emotions. It, it requires emotion, but it's always deeper than emotion. See, the rich young ruler, when God, or when Jesus spoke to him, remember this passage? Um, Jesus looked at him and said, okay, keep all the cam- commandments. The guy says, I've done it. I, I could just picture Jesus saying, sure you have, right. And, and then Jesus responds to him though and says, okay, fine. Go and sell all that you have and follow me. See, Jesus poked on one specific issue in his life and it says the rich young ruler walked away sad. See, he had an emotion, but he did not have repentance. See, repentance is even deeper than your intellect. Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, he he was sorry for it. He had a change of mind. He tried to give the money back, right? He had a change of mind, but it was not repentance. See, repentance requires both your, or all of these, your emotions, your intellect, and your heart. And in verse five, it says they believed God. That is an issue of the heart. Their heart is engaged with this. This repentance reached down and grabbed, grabbed and arrested the attention of their heart. You see this? This is where repentance always has to get to. If repentance is shallower than your heart, it's not true repentance. The root of repentance always reaches to your heart. This is belief. Belief is an act of the heart where we turn away from these things that we're trusting in, that we're believing in, that we're loving supremely. We turn away from these things and we redirect our belief in the gospel and at God. This is what repentance is. It's a turning from this and a turning toward God. It is looking at God and saying, God, I really do believe all that you say about you, all that you say about me, and all that you say that you are for me. I believe it all. And if there is one thing that we need, 
as a community of people that you need, that I need personally, it is for God to stoke and stir in us a real belief in who he is, who he says we are, and all that he says that he is for us. We need that. This is what repentance is. It reached their heart. Okay, but I want you to see this, that it also reached their hands. See, when repentance gets to your heart, it always comes out and works. You see this? It's an attitude of the heart, and then it comes out in all of these actions. So, so follow along with me and watch the external actions that, that give you some evidence that, that an internal change has happened here. Verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. You see that? That is an act for them externally of saying, God, we are guilty. God, we confess. God, this is an act of humility where we are laying ourselves low and telling you that you are right. We are wrong. We deserve anything you would give us. God, we have humbled ourselves before you. We are admitting our guilt. That's what they're doing there. Verse 6. The word of the, the Lord reached the king, or the, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. This is the king of the people of Nineveh saying, it's not just my people, but it's the king here. That the king exchanges his robe, this symbol of, of royalty, of richness, of wealth, for sackcloth, a, a symbol of poverty. He exchanges the seat of his throne, a symbol of power and authority, for a seat in the ashes, right? This is the external act of the king saying, God, we are guilty. We confess it. Look at verse 7. He issues this proclamation throughout the city that neither animal, I mean, that they involve the animals in this thing. The animals and the people, no one will eat, no one will drink. And then look what he says in verse 8, they called out mightily to God. This is the external act. This is, this is repentance reaching your hands. This is the heart coming out in the, in the form of your hands, of your actions. And I want you to see the last phrase in verse 8. The king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Okay, now, now this is going to be really important that you see this. Repentance has a general category to it. This is what you see here. Turn from the evil of your way. Turn from that. Evil of your way is a general category of saying, in all the ways that you have transgressed the commands of God, that you have crossed the way and will of God, repent from that. Turn from those things. It's a general category, a catch-all group. But, but repentance cannot stop there. Look at the next phrase. And then he goes on to say, and turn from the violence that is in your hands. That is a specific issue for the people of Nineveh. They were a cruel people infringing on human rights. They had a total disregard for, the, for just normal human dignity. And he's saying, this is a specific issue in you, in me, in us, that has to be repented of. He is looking at this people and he's saying this, repentance, if it's real, cannot stay in vague, general categories. If repentance is real, it's got to have specific things attached to it, specific sins attached to it. Do you see what's happening here? If you want repentance to be real, it never just sounds like this. It never sounds like, God, I'm a sinner. It can start there, but it can't stay there. 
It's got to go to this. And God, this is the specific ways that I am sinning against you. These are the specific means that I totally disregard you and set myself as if I am God against you. It is God, I am a sinner and pornography is the issue. Unforgiveness is the issue. A critical spirit is the issue. Worry and anxiety is the issue. Gluttony is the issue. Anger is the issue. Hatred is the issue. My words not being seasoned with salt and full of grace, but full of gossip and contempt, that's the issue. I don't love my wife as you love the church, that's the issue. I'm a selfish man who cares more about me than anyone else. That's the issue. I don't follow the, the, the leadership of my husband as you would call me to with joy. That's the issue. You see, this is what repentance goes to. It doesn't stay in general categories. It gets specific with our sin. So let me ask you the question. What is that specific thing for you? See, it's not enough for you to look up at God and say, God, okay, I'm a sinner. I get that. Repentance means that, that God has aroused a response in us with his word. And it has aroused and, it, and it's exposed specific sin in our life. Specific sin. And what are those things for you? you probably ask your wife if you're a man, right? probably ask your, your wife. She probably knows them pretty well. What, what are they for you? Okay, th there's some more here. You've got a comprehensive change that this repentance causes. And then this, and this, is, this is huge for us in our church culture. This collision produces an urgent response. When these words of God collide into the people of Nineveh, it was an urgent response. Okay, now look at verse 8. But let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. That's the ESV. Let me read the NIV to you. Okay, so it's going to say call out mightily to God. ESV. Now combine that with the NIV and I think you're getting the, the sense of what he's trying to say here. NIV. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let everyone call, listen to this word, urgently upon God. Urgently, mightily. Here's what's happening here. This is not Jonah coming in and the word of God slamming into the people of Nineveh and then procrastinating. It is not them kind of indifferently kind of admitting, yeah, you're probably right, but we could probably handle that tomorrow. It is not that. This produced in them an urgent response to what just got exposed in them. It was urgent. They could not put this off. This was the most important thing the people of Nineveh could do on this day. Let me ask you the question. Do you respond urgently when the word of God exposes things in you? I mean with urgency. I mean, is that how, do you treat it like a cancer that if you don't cut out today could kill you tomorrow? See, this is what's happening here. 
See, the most dangerous place you could be on a Sunday morning if you have no intention of repenting is in a church. Because you're going to walk out with today with either a softer heart toward God or a harder heart toward God. See, it's just, it's ludicrous to think that, that you can put off repentance as if you can manufacture conviction tomorrow and then have a desire to repent from it. That is not the way repentance works. Repentance is a gift from God. And when you get it, you better respond with urgency to it. Because when you don't respond with urgency, you put your own soul at peril. That the old Puritans used to say that when we refuse to respond with urgency and repentance to God, we are pawning our soul to the devil. This is the idea. This is what's happening. And I think we need to hear these words of Jonah in chapter 3 when he says this, repent. In 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. In 40 days. See, in, in our church culture that loves to like maximize the love of God, and we should hold that up, but God is not just love. See, this is the way a lot of people think about God, that there's a God of like the Old Testament that you see a little bit of that wrath of God there, right? You see these words like, 40 days, I'm going to obliterate you there. But in the New Testament, you get the love of God. You get John 3, 16 there. But listen, it is a false comparison. The same God that is the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And listen, the New Testament does not lighten the wrath and the demands of God. It only heightens them. Both the love of God and the wrath of God and the threats of God are heightened in the New Testament. See, it's not an Old Testament prophet that's going to say this, flee from the wrath to come. That's Jesus. It's not an Old Testament prophet that's going to say, there's going to be a day coming where people are going to scream at the mountains to crush them and the hills to cover them because they can't bear this. That's Jesus. You see this? That that same, those same, those same threats exist throughout the scriptures. And we need to be, we need to acknowledge those, that they're there. That this is the part of how God arouses urgent repentance in us. It's a part of why he says that I command you today to repent, not tomorrow, not the next day. See, we need to hear this from Jonah because this is what amazes me in our church culture. And you're going to see yourself in this. You see, I, I would call this sermon like a serious call to, to look at your life and examine your, your life and repent. That's what this sermon is. It, it's a hard sermon that I hope produces soft people. Because here's what amazes me about our church culture. We hear sermons like this, and we'll even have like this moment of, okay, that, that, that was good. God, God spoke. There's an issue. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with that. And then we go and eat chilies afterwards prop ourselves up on the couch, watch a little TV, and we don't think about it till next Sunday. So we're just indifferent to it. Great sermon, and we're indifferent to an urgent response to it. And do you see that in you? I see it in me. I, I see that in me all the time. I mean, I've got tomorrow for that, right? I mean, we've got next year for that. This demands an urgent response from you. When you stiff arm repentance, it's to the peril of your own soul. Last one here. And, th and this is really the beauty of the passage. Th this, is, this is what we love to see displayed here. 
is that repentance is answered by the God of grace. Watch how this plays out. In verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, you might circle this phrase or these two words. The king says, who knows? Who knows? And then look what he says. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows, he says. See, this is what the king, this is what the king of Nineveh knew about himself and about God. He knew that he was absolutely undeserving of any grace from God. He knew that. This was a king who, who on earthly levels, he, he had everything. He had the plush life. This was the king who commanded people. But he knew before God that he was completely undeserving of anything. He knew, I, I like these words of, of one preacher, that anything we receive from God other than hell is a gift. He knew that. He knew that he was completely undeserving before God. He did not, look at what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, but God, look at all these good deeds that we've done. Look at how I've raised some kids. Look at how I've managed money. Look at how I've done. He doesn't say any of that. He knows that he is undeserving. May God drill that deep in us. And he knows that God is an unobligated giver. That God can withhold that grace or he can give it. That God is absolutely free to give and, and, and to keep as he sees fit. He knows that. So he is pleading with God. He is pleading, God, will you please, God, let's, let's cry out to him. Let's plead with him. God, will you please relent? See, and here's one thing that he doesn't know, though. He doesn't have the text of the Old Testament to look back on and see how God has rescued and redeemed the people of Israel. He, he doesn't have the text of the Old Testament to look at how a God of grace dealt with a grumbling people in the wilderness, does he? See, he doesn't have the history with this God of, of grace that Jonah does. Where in Jonah 4.2, Jonah knows that this is a grace that, he, he, this is a God full of mercy, full of grace, abounding in steadfast love, who loves to relent. See, the king of Nineveh doesn't know those things. But he quickly gets an education. He, he gets a crash course on the character of God. Look at verse 10. Here's God's, response of grace to the people of Nineveh. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The king of Nineveh is hoping and pleading for that, right? How much more should we on this side of the cross not just hope and plead for it, but know that God always meets our repentance with his grace. How much more should we know that? That God always meets our repentance with his mercy. And that does not mean that we are free from all the consequences of our sin. It means that we are free from the ultimate curse of our sin. That on this side of the cross, God always meets our repentance with his beautiful and abounding mercy. How much more should we know that? That God loves to relent. That on the cross, it is God's definitive statement that when we repent, God will always relent. I mean, this is God's definitive statement of that. So here's how I want to end today. We're going to take communion and as we take communion, it's this beautiful display of the gospel. Like as, as we take the bread and we take the juice and we hold these elements up, 
they form these beautiful pictures for us. They're going to form this beautiful picture, these elements, bread and juice, of God's severity, his punishment, his justice towards sin. See, when you hold up the bread, the broken body of Jesus nailed to the cross, that the bruised and bloody body of Jesus, what you're holding there, what that's representing is that is a picture of God's anger, his justice, and his judgment on sin. This is God saying on the cross, 40 days and you're obliterated. 40 days and you're overthrown. But see, when we hold these elements up, it's not just a picture of the judgment of God, but the abounding mercy and grace of God, isn't it? That when we hold these elements up, it is God saying that Jesus has offered to take your punishment. That that broken body and that bruised body, that bloody body, it was overthrown so you wouldn't have to be. It was obliterated so you wouldn't have to be. All my judgment went there so you don't have to experience it. See, the, the cross, the, the finished work of, of, of Christ, the gospel, the broken body and, and the bruised body, the bloody body of Jesus, it is God's definitive statement so that we can know that when we repent in mercy, God loves to relent. Amen? Let's pray. So we've built just a little bit of time into the end of this service today because we want to give you um, an opportunity to sit under that. And as we take communion today, communion is for one type of person. It's for a person in right relationship with God. That's who it's for. And so let's start with the relationship piece of that. To be in a relationship with God, for Him to save you, rescue you, redeem you. For Him to do that, repentance is the requirement. It means that we turn away from all these things that we're chasing and pursuing and we believe the gospel. We believe all that, that God has done for us in Jesus. It, it means that we believe that who God is, that he's just and holy, who we are, we are sinful people and who Jesus is for us. He is the bridge. He is our way to God. He is our savior, our rescuer, our redeemer. See, our pathway into a relationship with God is repentance. So has that happened in you? Has there been a moment in your life where you have looked at God and said, God, I, I trust you above all things. God, here is my life. It's yours. All rights, they're all yours. And God, I treasure you before all things. But God, you're the one I'm chasing. You're the one I want. You're the one I desire. God, will you save me, redeem me, rescue me? Has that ever happened? If not, we'd invite that today. We'd love to celebrate that with you. You can check that little box on, on your uh, guest card there to let us know that. We'll follow up with you this week. We'd love to have that conversation with you and love to work that, you know, that through with you. Repentance is the only way into a relationship with God. 
And repentance is the only way to stay in right relationship with God. Repentance is the only way that you walk hand in hand with God. It's the only way that happens. That means that our top agenda is personal repentance. That this is the continual theme of our life, the continual mark of our life, that we are a repenting person. Is that happening in you? Is that happening? When's the last time God has exposed something in you and you have turned from it and to God? Specifically. what, What is that thing that God is pressing on and pushing on and saying, today, this has got to go urgently. It's cancer. It's in you today and it may kill you tomorrow. It's got to go. And so as we take communion um, to kind of close our service, I, I just want to give you a chance to sit under that. I mean, what, what are those things? What, what is that thing? And as you repent and as you get right with God, we would invite you to bring um, your family up, take communion with us this morning, celebrate the gospel. That because of Jesus, God loves relenting. Because of Jesus, God always meets our repentance with great grace. Because of Jesus... Our repentance is met with mercy. So we'd invite you to come up and celebrate that with us. God, you're good to us. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this portrait in Jonah chapter three, where we see wide scale repentance leading to revival. And God, we pray for it here. God, I pray that you would start to work personal repentance deep into our bones here. And God, it would be widespread throughout our church, throughout our city, throughout the churches in our city, throughout our country. God, that you would do that sort of a work here. And God, I pray that that it might start with a person or two in this room. It's in your good name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.